The Chicago Chronicle called him a multi-murderer, bigamist, seducer, forgerer, and thief. He was, that paper concluded, a man without parallel in the annals of crime. A year earlier, the New York world said that he built the castle of a modern bluebeard. It was, it was said, a veritable factory of murder. For over a hundred years, the legend of H. H. Holmes grew. He may have killed over 200 people in his murder castle. It was a specially built structure that contained multiple torture rooms with peepholes so he could watch his victims writhe as they died in agony. The rooms were soundproofed and hermetically sealed so he could pump in poison gas and slowly kill them, their desperate cries unheard as crowds walked by outside enjoying the music and fun of Chicago's World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition. He had, it was said, installed metal chutes in the torture rooms into which he would stuff the bodies of his victims. They would slide down the chutes to the basement where he had vats of acid and quicklime and a large furnace where they would be cremated. By the 20th century, his fame had grown and he was proclaimed America's first serial killer. In fact, one author, who also happened to be a descendant, indicated that he might have been the inspiration of England's Jack the Ripper. Or perhaps, since he did travel to Europe in the 1890s, maybe he was Jack the Ripper. Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio have been rumored to be working on a movie adaptation of his life and his crimes. A truly horrifying, homegrown American horror story. There's only one problem. It's probably not true. So sit back with Al Capone's favorite drink. Well, maybe that's not true either. A Southside. And listen to the tale of Dr. H. H. Holmes and his murder castle. The man who would later call himself Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, in honor of Sherlock Holmes, a New York Times reporter wrote, was born in May of 1861 as Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. His parents were devout Methodists, and his father was a fairly well-to-do farmer. By the 20th century, it was alleged that his father beat him and that he enjoyed torturing and dissecting animals. There doesn't seem to be any truth to that rumor, but after all, didn't most serial killers grow up in homes like that? So he must have too. He was, by all accounts, a very intelligent child. At the age of 16, he graduated from the prestigious Phillips Exeter Academy. While he was waiting for his college admission, he became a teacher for one year, and at age 17, he married a local girl, Clara Lovering. They quickly had one son, Robert. A year later, he entered the University of Vermont, but quickly became bored and left after one year. Two years later, 
he enrolled at the University of Michigan Department of Medicine and Surgery. He graduated from there in 1884 and became an anatomy instructor at the university. Like any young student, young Herman was strapped for cash and looked for a second source of income. As an anatomy professor, he had access to the cadavers that the school used to teach their doctors. Many of these were bodies of prisoners, or just John or Jane Doe's whose unidentified bodies were found and turned over to the school. It was a simple matter, really, in those days to create an identity for someone and purchase a life insurance policy. One could create a false identity for oneself and make that person the beneficiary. As a doctor, Henry could then concoct a death certificate on a cadaver and receive the insurance proceeds. But what to do with the bodies? Suppose a relative showed up and identified one of the dearly departed and indicated that it wasn't who the death certificate said it was. Well, there was a simple solution to that problem for an anatomy professor. He would strip the skin and muscles from the skeleton with acid or quicklime and then sell the bones to a medical school or to high schools or even to carnivals. Easy peasy. Life at the Mudgett household, though, was not domestic bliss. There were reports that he was violent toward Clara. She eventually left him and went back east. At one point, he filed for divorce, alleging that she was unfaithful. There was no record that she was ever served with the lawsuit or that she ever even knew about it. Eventually, the suit was dismissed, and he soon moved east himself, first to Philadelphia, where he went on to work in a drugstore. Parents bought medicine for their young son from him one day, and the boy later died. Years later, newspaper reporters would characterize that boy as his first, or maybe his second, or possibly his third victim. But there's no evidence that Holmes had anything to do with the lad's death. By 1893, Mudgett had moved west to Chicago, and he began calling himself H.H. Holmes. He found a job at a drugstore where he soon became known as a model employee. An older couple owned the drugstore, and soon Holmes was doing most of the work and eventually entered into an agreement with them to buy the store. According to later newspaper reports, the couple mysteriously disappeared, and it seemed obvious that Holmes had swindled them and then murdered them and then destroyed their bodies with acid, quicklime, and fire. Fortunately for the couple, however, this was another tall tale, manufactured by reporters who were concocting a story to keep their readers interested. The couple actually took their money from the sale of the building and moved to California, where they lived out their lives in the glorious California sunshine. And when they were contacted later, they had nothing but good things to say about their former employee. And yet Holmes still had time for love. He met and married a local girl named Myrta Belknap. She came from a wealthy family and was a schoolteacher in Willamette, Illinois. Holmes would occasionally come home to Willamette on the weekends, but he spent most of his time in Chicago tending to his drugstore. With the Columbian Exposition set to open just a few miles away, he saw an opportunity to make money. 
He purchased a vacant lot and began building a three-story building. The first floor would be retail space, and the two upper floors would be used for apartments and hotel rooms that could be rented out to visitors to the fair. There were indications that the hotel rooms were never finished, and there's no record that he ever rented any out. Holmes built most of the hotel on credit, obtaining loans from his father-in-law and using his brother-in-law's credit to get bank loans. He refused to pay a lot of the laborers who worked on the building and went to great lengths to hide the furnishings that he had bought on credit. Evidently, when creditors would come to repossess their furniture, they would find all the rooms empty, deserted. What they didn't know was that there were secret hidden rooms where homes could stash the furniture and other stolen goods. As far as the metal chutes in the room, laundry chutes, common in hotels of that era. But with his wife, Myrta, teaching in Willamette, Holmes was lonely. He eventually met Julia Smith, a young woman who had a young daughter named Pearl, and they soon became an item. But Julia, it seemed, wanted more than a lover. She wanted to marry this charismatic, handsome entrepreneur, who, by the way, was still married not only to Murda, but also to Clara. And as it turned out, Julia was pregnant. Holmes finally agreed to marry her, but only if she agreed to get an abortion. But where to get an abortion in the 1890s? Perhaps from a doctor. And Holmes was a doctor, of sorts. Neither Julia nor her young daughter, Pearl, were ever seen again. Holmes later said that she had left him, but then changed the story to say that she had died while getting an abortion. Years later, an acquaintance of Holmes revealed that he was paid to strip a skeleton of a very tall woman that Holmes intended to sell to a medical school. Julia was almost six feet tall and police later found what may have been child's bones buried in Holmes' basement. Then he met Minnie Williams, another attractive, well-to-do woman. He hired her to be his secretary, but clearly the relationship was more than that of an employer and an employee. He discovered that Minnie and her sister owned some property in Fort Worth, Texas. He convinced them to deed the property over to him, telling them that he would develop it and increase its value and split the money with them. Minnie's sister Nanny came to Chicago to visit, and the threesome planned a trip to Europe. Nanny wrote her parents, Brother Holmes is taking us to Paris. They left. Nanny and Minnie were never seen again. Holmes struck up an acquaintance with a carpenter, Benjamin Pitzel. Pitzel helped around the hotel, helped on some of the construction projects, and he had an attractive wife, who also worked for Holmes as a bookkeeper. It was becoming increasingly obvious that Mrs. Pitzel's relationship with Holmes was, like Minnie's, much more intimate than employer-employee. Benjamin suspected that they were having an affair, but seemed powerless to stop it. In 1894, one of Holmes' buildings burned down, 
and the insurance companies wanted him prosecuted for arson. He left Chicago for Fort Worth, Texas, and he tried to develop the property that many had deeded to him, but that didn't work out, and so soon he left for St. Louis. He was arrested in St. Louis for insurance fraud, and while in jail, struck up a friendship with an inmate who introduced him to his lawyer. Holmes and the lawyer concocted a scheme to defraud an insurance company of $10,000. Holmes would change his identity and fake his own death. It would solve a number of his problems. He'd have some money, and since he was dead, the heat would be off. But the insurance company, when they received the claim, thought something looked fishy and they refused to pay. So Holmes left St. Louis for Philadelphia. Insurance fraud scheme was still attractive, but Holmes realized they needed a real victim this time. Holmes sent for his friend, Benjamin Pitzel. He set Pitzel up under the name of B.F. Perry, a chemist. He created a fictitious name for himself and made himself the beneficiary of a life insurance policy. The plan was for Pitzel to be killed in a lab explosion. Holmes would supply a cadaver that would be the burned, disfigured body. When Pitzel showed up to play his role, Holmes chloroformed him and then set his body on fire. By this time, Pitzel's wife, Holmes' former mistress, became suspicious. Unbeknownst to her, Holmes had convinced Pitzel to assign custody of his three children to him. Holmes took the children trying to ensure that his former lover wouldn't blow the whistle. She chased him all over the mid part of the country. Sometimes he would put them in a hotel room just three blocks from where he knew she was staying. But tired of caring for them, he finally disposed of them. Apparently, he put the two little girls in a large trunk and piped in gas through a hose, asphyxiating them. Their bones were found in a house that he rented in Toronto. The boy's remains were found in the basement of another rental property of Holmes in Indianapolis. Holmes was finally arrested for Benjamin Pitzel's murder in Philadelphia. A jury found him guilty, and he was sentenced to death. The trial was given wide coverage in what was known then as the Yellow Press, the equivalent of our present-day tabloids. It was here that most of the rumors started. The Hearst newspaper chain paid him $27,000 for his memoirs, in which he confessed to killing 27 people. After his death, reporters looked into his story. Many of the people he confessed to killing were alive and well. And like the old couple in Chicago, most had fond memories of the handsome, charismatic man. Perhaps we should let H.H. Holmes himself have the last word. I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world. And he has been with me since. Or maybe it was these last words. Before he was hanged, he recanted his confession and proclaimed his innocence. He had never killed anyone, he said, 
He was just a very ordinary man, below average in strength and mental ability. He said, to have planned and carried out the stupendous wrongdoings that have been attributed to me would have been wholly beyond my power. Who is H. H. Holmes? Hmm, that was very interesting. That was a different take than I heard on the YouTube videos I watched. I know. I'm excited to talk about it. Okay. But first, like usual, we are going to go over the trends of the crime. And I had a hard time finding a subject for trends of the crime this week. Uh, I thought about doing like bellhop chic or something, like something to do with hotels. But... Well, you know, since H.H. Holmes had an eye for the ladies, maybe you could have done something about what the well-dressed mistresses were wearing in the Gilded Age. Well, I did talk about women in general, so surely his mistresses would fit in to this. Okay. So I decided to talk about fashion at the World's Fair, which just means fashion of the time because (laughs) just a more creative way of me saying fashion in the 1890s, Uh, which I don't know if we've talked about this yet. Have we this decade? No, I don't believe we have. I don't think so. So women, uh, due to the growing urban centers and the introduction of new technologies like electricity in clothing manufacturing, women had access to -to ready-to-wear clothing and were more independent than ever. The number of women working outside the home almost doubled from the previous decade. The new woman of the era was an intellectual who worked, cycled, and played sports. What sports would they have played? I don't know. Tennis? I'm guessing tennis. Rowing, maybe? Yeah, I was going to say something with water. Mm-hmm. Definitely That's tennis, what, yeah. though. Mm-hmm. Women at the World's Fair wore bell-shaped skirts that fit smoothly over the hips with large Lego mutton sleeves. Really cute. I do have some uh, tops with sleeves that are that were clearly inspired. They're not as dramatic as mm-hmm. these were, but I mm-hmm. definitely have some pieces where mm-hmm. it was inspired by the 1890s. The 18 We're talking about 1990s being back. Well, the 1890s are back too. Okay. How about that? I guess Menswear inspired women's wear, which still happens today, um, especially through the shirtwaist. So women in who worked outside of the home often wore shirtwaists like the men would wear, but they would just pair them with a skirt instead of trousers. Hmm. What about hats? Mm, for women? Yeah. Mm. You know anything about them? Nope. Okay. I was just curious. <laughs> I know they wore their hair back. Uh-huh. They didn't really wear their hair down. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see anything about hats in my article that I read. So anyway, we do know about the men's hats, though. Yes. Do they, tell. They liked top hats and bowler hats. I know we've talked about those. And the bowler hats of this time were really exaggerated and extra tall and extra voluminous. Mm-hmm. Men also had... A more narrow silhouette, but the trousers became more relaxed in cut. So it was a similar silhouette to the previous decades, but trousers were less tight. Mm-hmm. 
Shirts were heavily starched for stand-up collars, and shirts and waistcoats were sometimes made in a playful color since mm-hmm. jackets were left open. Mm-hmm. So the men finally got something fun in their yep. fashion. I've read about um, old Boss Tweed in New York. Mm-hmm. Would have been there about the 1880s, 1890s, and he would wear green and yellow plaid on the, uh, hmm. you know, on the on the Senate floor, and was quite the Cut quite the figure. Yeah. And um, oh. I'm sorry, I said Boss Tweed. I, I'm, I was, that's wrong. It's Roscoe Conkling was oh. his name, but very, always dressed very colorfully. Uh huh. That's fun. It's always refreshing to see a man, especially in like bright, brighter clothes, mm-hmm. like the shirt that you spilled taco sauce all over oh, on your yes. way here. That it's you currently put in-, in my washer. Well, thank you again for that. <laughs> uh, this was also the era of the Gibson girl. And I know we've talked about the Gibson girl before, but mm-hmm. she was like the ideal look for women of that time. Mm-hmm. The ideal figure, gotta love beauty standards created by men. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> that was sarcasm. Because <laughs> the Gibson girl was completely created by a white male. Love it. <laughs> That's all I got for fashion today. I know okay. it's pretty lame, but um, I was excited about the story. So, okay. First, tell us about our cocktail. Well, I decided since this uh, centered in Chicago, we were going to find a cocktail that, uh, if it didn't originate in Chicago, at least it has some historical ties to Chicago. And so I came up with the South Side. Mm. Uh, the South Side really is just a, it's just a gimlet, which is gin, uh, sugar, and lime juice. But to make it a South Side, you also muddle a little bit of of uh, mint. So it's a very refreshing summer drink. Uh, we don't really know exactly if it started in Chicago. Some people say it started in some Chicago speakeasies. Other people say no, it started on the South Side of New York. Um, so it, it's lost, its origins are lost in the fog of history, but, um, some people say it was Al Capone's favorite cocktail. Uh, you longtime uh, cocktails of crime and fashion listeners may remember that we did a, an episode on George Remus, one of the famous bootleggers and Remus would never cut his liquor. He always was, uh, insistent that his illegal booze be good booze. Uh, some of the other bootleggers weren't like that, and, and Al Capone was one of them. Um, he liked his booze, but uh, it wasn't good booze, and so uh, people said he really liked the South Side because uh, the, the the sugar and the mint disguised the flavor of some really bad bathtub gin. So that's our cocktail uh, today, the South Side. Sounds good. Sounds yummy. I'm looking forward to it, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've got some you've got some uh, information on hotels I since do, that's be- one of the centers of our story maybe maybe yes uh, I did do a bit of a deep dive on the history of hotels and there's quite the history that I bet not a lot of us knew about and something I didn't include in this was that people have been providing lodging for others since like the Grecian and Roman times. Hmm. Is that the right word? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people would be coming through and other others would let them stay where they were 
habitating. Mm. So it's so interesting. Kinda, it's been going on forever. So kind of like, uh, kind of like uh, fifth and sixth century Airbnbs. Yes. Okay. Yes. But the start of hotels, as we think of hotels, or the earliest of something similar to what we think of as a formal hotel was at the beginning of the 15th century in France and England. And that was when hotels started uh, needing to keep a register. And soon after they were required to keep a register, more than 600 hotels were registered in England. The architecture of these hotels was pretty simple. They had a paved interior court with access through an arched porch. And the bedrooms were situated on two sides of the courtyard, the kitchen and the public rooms at the front, and the stables and storehouses at the back. You did not get your own bathroom at this time. That, that actually comes quite a bit later, rooms getting their own bathroom, but we'll get to that. A hotel industry began to develop in Europe, and at the end of the 1600s, the first stagecoaches following a regular timetable started operating in England. Half a century later, clubs similar to English gentlemen's clubs and Masonic lodges began to appear in America. So, like usual, we follow the Europeans here in America. And now we move on to the 19th century. The industrial boom made hotels available all over Europe and America, but only in the city centers. The Holt Hotel in New York City was the first to provide an elevator for luggage. And the New York Hotel in New York City was the first to be equipped with private bathrooms. So you didn't get a private bathroom till the 1800s. Then we get to Le Grand Hotel Paris, which is the famous hotel in Paris. It opened on May 5th, 1862. Have you ever seen photos of this? No, I don't believe I have. If I have, I I didn't realize what it was. Well, it was recently renovated. It's been renovated multiple times, but pretty, pretty recently reopened after a restoration and renovation. And it looks like if Beauty and the Beast came to life and you could stay in the Beast's house. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. Except it's brighter. (laughs) The Beast's house is kind of dark. Uh, The building was designed by the architect Alfred Armand in order to show the elite of travelers from all over the world the progress made under the Second Empire by the sciences, arts, and industry. The greatest names in painting and decorating helped put the hotel together. The first ever hydraulic elevator was installed in this hotel. And in 1890, the hotel was equipped with electric lighting. The hotel was renovated in 2002 and 2003 and just reopened after another renovation and restoration, like I just said. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think if we ever go to France, we need to stay there. I will be going to France. and But I don't know if I'm rich enough to stay at Le Grand Hotel Paris. I imagine it, uh, I imagine it costs quite a few euros. Right. Maybe one night we could stay at that hotel. Yes. We'll talk mom into it. There we go. Um <laughs> I've got something to add Please. here on uh, 19th century lodging in, in at least America, uh-huh. um, particularly on the frontier. Um, taverns uh, had rooms. So, you know, today we think of hotels with, with little bars. Uh, back in uh, 
back in the uh, early part of the 19th uh, century, uh, and even for even the 18th century, uh, taverns would uh, would have rooms that they would rent to travelers. So you you hear we have records of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams going into a tavern as they were traveling and uh, having a pint, and then well Adams probably didn't, but. Uh, <laughs> And then going upstairs and and sharing a room, and you would share rooms with strangers, mm-hmm. like a um, hostel. Yeah, so you know you'd be in a room, and it wasn't unusual for five or six men to be in a room with two beds, three three men in each bed. And I have this vision of the Three Stooges. In uh, each three men in one bed. Yes. Yep. Just were they like in. sardines? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I, I don't. I I'm venturing to guess they didn't have king size beds in no, those places. No, I mean you just cram in there. Um, Ew. Think of the smell. I know. It's it's pretty disgusting. My One of my best friends, Stephanie, shout out. I don't think she listens. This will be a test. Um, <laughs> I went to visit her. She lives in Ellenwood, Kansas. And something very interesting about Ellenwood, which is pretty much in the middle of our state, they have like an underground network of like the old, uh, like it used to be taverns and there's an old barber shop down there. Hmm. None of it's operating. You go hmm. and you tour, but right. obviously there's no like barbers in the barber hmm. shop. And in the tavern, it leads you to like a bathhouse essentially hmm. where travelers could go in there and take baths and there'd be people in there to who would bring in the water and pour it in the bathtub for hmm. you. And obviously the People, the more money you had, the fresher and warmer water you got. And if you didn't have money, you had to bathe in other people's bath water. <laughs> Gross. But this reminds me of that. Yeah. In the uh, 20th century, a lot of new hotels popped up and were very prestigious. Hotels started being built in the mountains. Think ski resorts in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. Waldorf Astoria was built after the 1929 stock market crash during the Depression and was successful. It was the greatest hotel edifice of those troubled times. Mm. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Mm -hmm. Tourism grew in popularity in the Mediterranean due to trade. So hotels were built near Mediterranean beaches. And hotels began making areas for business people in the 1970s. Uh, So they would have places for people to work instead of only sleep. If I can throw something in here, Mm -hmm. a little bit of our personal history that you may not know about. Mm -hmm. Um, By the 1920s and 30s, when people started getting cars and roads were being built so people could actually travel... um, People wanted more affordable lodging uh, rather than going into a fancy hotel. They just wanted some place where they could pull in and, and spend the night and maybe get a quick meal and then go on their way. Um, today, we would call those motels. Mm-hmm. But back in the 20s and 30s, they called them tourist camps. Mm. And uh, your great, great aunt mm-hmm. and uh, her husband owned a tourist camp. And just outside Dalhart, Texas, it was called the Blue Bonnet Camp. And uh, it's still kind of halfway standing. It's about all fallen down and collapsed now. But uh, 
that's kind of the beginning of what today we think of as, as motels, just very cheap lodging, no frills. You go in, you get a bed. Uh, maybe there's some place you can get a cup of coffee and, and uh, a good American breakfast, and then you're on your way. Interesting. So that that's the precursors to Howard Johnson's and Holiday Inn mm-hmm. and uh, all of those. Motel 8. Mm-hmm. Or Super 8. I Super mean. 8 and Motel 6. Yeah. We'll leave the light on for you. <laughs> How many entrepreneurs do we have in our family, Dad? Well, I don't know. You're Well, since this is Cocktails of Crime and Fashion, I can uh-huh. tell you about your grandfather, sure. your great-grandfather. Uh-huh. Um, he was a police chief in Hastings, Nebraska during Prohibition. Yes. And he would, uh, when they found uh, illegal booze being sold, he would get his uh, some of his cops. They would call the newspaper and uh, they would raid the bootleggers' uh, stills. They would bring some axes. They would break up the stills. And then after the newspaper reporters uh, left, your grandfather, the police chief, would... Uh, would find the they didn't break up all the stills. They would go to the stills that were not broken, mm-hmm. and they would bottle the booze, and he would take it back to his house and sell it out of his attic. Mm, yep. So that was fairly entrepreneurial. Mm, very much so. Pretty smart. Mm. This brings us to the 80s and 90s, and then we'll talk about hotels today. But in the 80s and 90s, you began to see hotels near airports, hotels for conferences, health hotels, ski holiday hotels, and holiday villages. Would a holiday village just be like a uh, like a resort yeah. situation? Yeah, yeah. First property management companies appeared on the market at this time. A couple of them were Fidelio and Hogatex. Have you ever heard of either of Never those? Never have, uh-uh. You don't know about property management companies weird i know about i know about (laughs) some of them and don't get me started because now most of them are into timeshares which is the biggest ripoff in in the history of the lodging industry but we won't go there because we don't want to get sued Mm -hmm. the first administrative hotel management systems offering hotels greater independence from human resources also showed up at this time And for the first time, the environment and energy conservation played an important role in the marketing activities of numerous chains, thanks in part to the green movement, and even helped to win the loyalty of numerous clients while safeguarding assets at the same time. You know what I learned in college? What? Companies do this. They're like, oh, we're green. (laughs) We care about the environment. You know what they actually care about? Saving money on their electric bills. Sure. Rude. Don't be fooled, people. Let's talk about modern-day hotels. What are your favorites? Hmm. Well, I'm trying to think of any any names. Um, you know, uh, to me, most of the hotels you stay in when you travel, they're, they're just kind of the budget hotels with the bad breakfast, mm-hmm. powdered eggs and microwave sausage and bacon. One's just like the other. I I still love to go to an old hotel, Mm -hmm. just an old hotel with with a bar that you can just sit down and have a good cocktail. Uh, You know, they don't have a lot of TV channels. They they, uh, may not have a great pool, but there's just something about an, an old hotel like the Palmer House in Chicago 
that's probably my favorite hotel I've ever stayed in. Just very old, a lot of history, a lot of things happened there, political conventions. If I could stay at an old hotel, that's what I would choose to do. And in fact, your mother and I will be staying at a very old, famous hotel yes, in about three or four days. We're, I'm so jealous. We're going to Estes Park and staying at the Stanley Hotel. And that is the hotel that served as the inspiration for the movie, The Shining. So if you want to see a, a cool, possibly haunted hotel, take a look at it. It's, it's red and white. It's got porch, wraparound porches all the way around. It's got a great bar called the Whiskey Bar. So my plan is to arrive there at about 3 o'clock Monday and at... Uh, no later than 319, I'm going to be down in the whiskey bar sampling some good cocktails. How about you also take a toy tricycle and ride it down the hallway? And you could also take an axe, knock a door down and say, here's Johnny. Yeah, the axe is already packed, but oh, don't good. tell your mother. All right, good, good. Please video it for all of us. Thank you. Um, well, I we also like to stay at traditional B&Bs. Mm-hmm. Mom, you, and myself. Mm-hmm. That's always fun, getting to talk with other travelers, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. and getting a, a good breakfast. Mm-hmm. We stayed in one. Where was that? In uh, Where'd we go? You remember that house that I kept asking them if it was haunted because it was so old? And it was full of stuff, like mm. antiques. Oh, yes, but I can't. I can't remember where it was. I can't remember where it was. That one was cool. Also, something cool that's becoming popular is that I think is cool. My dad won't care about this, but hotels that are designed for like Instagram that are really cute and Mm -hmm. trendy. Mm -hmm. Those are pretty neat. And I Mm -hmm. like those. And they also double for like if you need some sort of brand photo shoot, you can go to one Mm -hmm. of those. Mm -hmm. So that's hotels today. We also, of course, have short-term rentals, Airbnb. Mm-hmm. If you ever want to stay in Lawrence, rent out my Airbnb. Shameless oh, yeah. plug. There we go. <laughs> I won't cook you cool. breakfast, but I will give you fresh eggs so you can make your own breakfast. How pretty cool. <laughs> I wanted to quickly also talk about the World's Fair. I'm not going to, there's a lot of notes here. I'm not going to talk about all this, but I wanted to touch on a couple things. First of all, the World's Fair in 1893, it was actually called the World's Columbian Exposition, which celebrated the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the New World in 1492. But I did want to note that we now know the horrible things that Christopher Columbus did when he discovered the New World. So I just don't want it to sound like we are proving of Christopher Columbus necessarily. So that's true. And of course I the the New World, that's a pretty uh ethnocentric term as well. Yes. I w- yes, Eric, I, I have quotes on the yes. notes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I forget you guys can't see my notes yes. or my hands. Yes, I have New World in quotation marks. So yes. The other thing I thought was interesting about the Chicago World's Affairs, what I'm going to call it. Um the area that was that was the World's Fair was known as the White City, and that's because the facades were made from a mixture of plaster, cement, and jute fiber called staff. 
which was painted white, giving the buildings their gleam. Uh, did you read about this in that book at all? I, I did. There's a there's a there's a great little book called um, "Devil in the White City: Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair That Changed America" by Eric Larson. Uh, he jumps he, he, alternating chapters in that book. One would be about the World's Fair and how it began and what it was like, and then he'll jump to a chapter about H. H. Holmes, and then back to the World's Fair. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a great read. This was really the first massive use of electric lighting in the country. Hmm. So that's why that's another reason they call it uh, the White City. Those white buildings were just illuminated with thousands of electric lights. Street so, lights, yeah. Yeah, back in eighteen ninety three, uh, that was we were you know, most homes didn't even have electricity, and so this was just something that got the oohs and ahs. Is, People would approach it at the night. It just looked like this huge, white, bright uh, city on a hill almost. The world's first white party. Fabulous white parties on yachts. You know, mm-hmm. everyone wears white. Yep. That's what I meant. Everyone mm-hmm. wears white. Uh, however, there is another side to this coin of the mm-hmm. white city. Yes. Uh, according to a Notre Dame history professor named Gail Baderman, white city not surprisingly, sparked a controversy. In her 1995 text, Manliness and Civilization, she wrote, The white city, with its vision of future perfection and of the advanced racial power of manly commerce and technology, constructed civilization as an ideal of white male power. According to Baderman, people of color were barred entirely from participating in the organization of the White City and were instead given access only to the Midway exhibit, which specialized in spectacles of barbarous races, authentic villages of Samoans, Egyptians, uh, uh, Dahomans, I would guess is how you pronounce that, Turks and other exotic peoples populated by actual imported natives, quotes, air quotes. Um, and then there were two small exhibits included in the White City's Women's Building, which addressed women of color. One entitled Afro-American was installed in a distant corner of the building, and the other called Women's Work in Savagery, which included baskets, weavings, and African, Polynesian, and Native American arts. And they were produced by living women of color, but the materials were represented as relics from the distant past, embodying the work of white women's own distant evolutionary foremothers. Yeah, the whole point of this thing was to show uh, American superiority. Right, how far we've come. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ignoring the culture of those who were mm-hmm. even in attendance. Yeah. And uh, and even even back then, people uh, were objecting to this. Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. um, they were um, they were objecting to this. But 1893, no one really listened to any of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still have that problem. Oh yeah, I, I would say we're making some progress, but it's pretty slow, unfortunately. So. Well, it sounds like you and I might have a little bit of a different take on H.H. H. Holmes. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that. I just, you gave me a new perspective. Because the person I watched on, I always watch a YouTube video about mm-hmm. the case just so I can get a base level knowledge before mm-hmm. I do my notes. Mm-hmm. 
And she did not ever say he may not have done anything. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think he did something. I think he probably killed eight or nine people. Mm -hmm. Just not the extent. Yeah, not not 200, clearly. And he, he confessed to 27. And we know a lot of those people were still alive. Yeah, I mean, he he clearly killed uh, uh, Benjamin Pixtel. I think he killed uh, Jane Smith and her daughter. I think he killed the uh, the two sisters, and I think he killed the the three Pixtel children. Mm-hmm. But you know, the motive for his crime wasn't just you know to torture someone, and and uh, I don't think he was a sex maniac. He was a he was a con man, right? He his, was his trying mur- to dig himself out of problems. His murders were about money, uh-huh. insurance fraud, uh, and and he marries women that he's already and he's already married, and he wants to get he wants to get rid of them. So this was just an evil con man. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was not Jeffrey Dahmer. This was not Ted Bundy. Uh, this was just a crook who who murdered to make a buck and and to save himself from embarrassment, really. It seems like with these more modern serial killers like Ted Bun- Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, they had extra- extraordinarily high IQs. Mm-hmm. It seems like H.H. H. Holmes' IQ was pretty low. I think so. I would guess. And that would make sense that back then you could get away with that mm-hmm. and not be thinking ahead, yeah. ahead, ahead. Yeah. Uh, because you didn't have any way, like people, you could fake your own death so easily. Yeah. I think clearly this was a this was a case of uh of the press just making something up to sell papers. I mean it's sensational. Of course you want to read about the murder castle, you want to read about the torture rooms, you want to read about the the crematorium in the basement. Um you want to read about the 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 hundreds of murders. And and the fact that the the World's Fair was going on, I think that that played into it. Mm-hmm. People came to Chicago and vanished. I mean, there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of people who who went there. There were a lot of uh, sex workers there who, you know, were killed or or vanished. Or people who said they were going to Chicago and were never heard of again. And it was pretty easy for the press to say, "Well, it must have been it must have been Doctor Holmes who murdered them." Mm-hmm. No, no, I think. Eight or nine people, I think, tops. You know what that is? What? What I'm learning about in the class I'm taking. What? I think that's a case of the agenda-setting theory. Yes? Do tell. Agenda-setting, I looked this up because I can't describe it in, uh, what's the word? I don't know it well enough yet to describe it eloquently. So the Wikipedia definition is, uh, the ability to influence the importance placed on the topics of the public agenda. So it's the study uh, that describes the way media attempts to influence viewers and establish a hierarchy of news prevalence. So it's it's the theory that the media could be making things up mm-hmm. to influence public perception. It will be interesting to see if Scorsese and DiCaprio really do come out with a uh, uh, with so. a movie based on Larson's book and and what take uh, that that presents. Um, if you if you read Larson's book, I mean, some of, he makes some of the more sensational claims, but then if you bother to read the footnotes, you'll find that uh, 
the footnote will say there's actually no corroboration <laughs> of this story. Uh, this may not have happened. So, you know, even Larson, who is trying to sell a book, and he it's a very well-written book, um, I think he understands that that this wasn't uh, this wasn't about a, a serial killer per se. This was about a con man who killed people to to, to get some money, get some money, cover, and, the, and to cover his strong tracks. Yep, and to get out of his sketchy things. But I mean, you kill more than three people, you're a serial killer. Okay. So he is technically a serial. All killer. right then. But I see what you mean. He's yeah. not what we would think of today as a serial right. killer. Right. Uh, so, you know, I do think that that Leo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese project might be a show because Hulu signed on. Oh, okay. Uh, but as of now, they still haven't set a date. So hopefully that comes out someday. Yeah. We'll keep you guys posted if, if you don't see it yourselves. Um, (laughs) the other thing that's uh, a fun thing in the media uh, American Horror Story did a season very, very, very loosely based off of the murder castle. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was Lady Gaga's first season. It was Hotel. Uh-huh. So American Horror Story Hotel. I, I watched part of it. It's really good. So, well, that's H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, The Tower of Terror. Next week, we have John Wayne Gacy. The Scary Clown. Ooh. We've been wanting to do this one for a long time. We have been. Now he's a serial killer. <laughs> That's a serial killer. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you. Bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. 